I'm a black woman, but I'm an incredibly privileged black woman. I have incredibly fair skin. I have light eyes. My proximity to whiteness means that my day-to-day life is easier than someone who can't have any separation from that. Like being a dark-skinned black woman is harder than my life. Being a dark-skinned trans person is harder than my life. Being a dark-skinned queer person is harder than my life. All of these things are harder. Being dark-skinned and with all of the rest of my life being exactly the same and my identities being exactly the same is still just harder. I still don't have a jingle yet, so I'll have to make it myself. Who hurt you? The podcast with me, your host, Sophie Hagen. I am back. I am back after a longer break, the longest break we've had on this podcast so far. And I will talk to you about this in way more detail after you hear my interview with anti-racism advocate Sophie Williams. What I will say is that at this moment, it's July 11th, uh, 2021. That's not how we say it. It's July 11th, 2021. And I am staring at 10 files on my computer, all with names of people that I have interviewed over the past four months. Interviews that I have not yet sent to my editor, Dave. Interviews that I have mostly forgotten the context of. The short version of the reasoning behind this is mental health issues. I realized that my whole life up to this point, I thought that you could tell that therapy was working when the hard stuff no longer felt that hard. But recently I learned that no, therapy is working when the hard stuff is hard, but you somehow have the actual strength to go through it and get to the bottom of things. And that's where I'm at right now. And despite this podcast being 100% my podcast, and I can technically do whatever I want with it, I still felt like I had to adhere to these rules that I set up myself. And when I couldn't record one episode a week, I just stopped thinking about it. And at the odd moment where I really felt like talking to a cool person, I managed to book and conduct the interviews, only to then not record the intro and the outro and not send them to Dave to be edited and published. But here I am. I finally have some space in my head to make these recordings and get these amazing interviews out to you. There are at least 10 coming your way, and you will see them pop up on your feed every other week or so from now on. Thank you, as always, for your patience. If you are not a Patreon supporter, please go to patreon.com forward slash Sophie Hagen, that is S-O-F-I-E-H-A-G-E-N, to support my work and or brain. And if you are a Patreon supporter, listen to my ramblings at the end of this episode to get the full picture of what's going on there. Now I want to introduce you to Sophie Williams. I met Williams when she did her TEDx London Women Talk earlier this year and I hosted the after party show and had a chat with her and I just found her so fascinating. Sophie Williams is the author of Millennial Black and Anti-Racist Ally. She's a TED speaker, founder of at Official Millennial Black on uh, Instagram, and she's a racial equity consultant and activist. I highly recommend that you go watch her TEDx London Women Talk on YouTube before listening to our conversation, but it's not necessary for your understanding of it. I just think it's great. We had a super interesting chat and I am excited for you to listen. Here is Sophie Williams. It is 
Sunday, the 2nd of May, I'm in my kitchen where there is a mountain of coffee because I accidentally ordered too much. I, I, I like showered and stuff. So I feel very clean and fresh and I'm actually quite optimistic at the moment. I've had some good therapy and, uh, it's May. So we're hoping that there's going to be a bit of sun soon. Um, I just sat outside with my coffee in the rain, which was oh so nice. Uh, so that is where I am. We're entering into the world sort of getting back to normal after the pandemic, but I don't know how many of us are actually fully believing that that is going to happen, but fingers crossed. And yeah, I am here with Sophie Williams. Where are you in in your world, in your life? Hi. So yeah, I'm in London as well. I'm in my flat, which I've just like this week finished getting renovated. So I'm in a room that didn't exist a week ago, which is fun. Um, and I've accidentally filled this entire room with balloons. <laughs> <laughs> I can see them in the background. It's a bit yeah, fun, isn't it? <laughs> so many. Um, my neighbour, her birthday is tomorrow and her fiancé wants to surprise her. So we've become, um, he was like, just a couple of balloons, just a couple of balloons. So I've got six bin bags full of balloons. <laughs> and I would like to point out also that I'm being very brave because I am scared of balloons. Oh, no. Um, but I think they're they're contained in bags. So sort of, I guess that's where I am emotionally. I'm feeling like optimistic that all of the balloons aren't going to burst and scare me and ruin the podcast. I mean, this is the perfect scenario for <laughs> this podcast is that your phobia is literally right behind you, yeah. <laughs> placing you in a, in a very constant fight flight mode. <laughs> yeah, that's where I am. Nice and chill. <laughs> what is it about the balloons? Is it the, the feel or the sound or the... I can't control or predict what they're going to do. They can make a really loud, scary noise at a moment that I don't know it's going to happen. Oh, is that a general thing you have, like a control thing? We've really gone straight into it, haven't we? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes, I I do like to be in control of things. So like even like getting injections or things like that, like I'm aware that it doesn't hurt, but I'm also aware that I can't be in control of it. And so I I really sort of try to avoid things like that. Um, yeah. Hi, this is me. <laughs> so to start off, like tell, you have a lot of titles, like you do a lot of different uh, work, uh, a lot of it within business and anti-racism. What is the actual thing that you do? Hmm. Well, I don't know. <laughs> like how does it look day to day, the actual process of like of being an advocate and working in business yeah so it's it's quite varied so all of 2020 um just like everyone else I was just like figuring out what is life but at the same time as doing that I, I wrote two books in that time so those days looked very much like sitting down on my sofa and staying there all day and just writing and like I typed until all of the vowels have fallen off my keyboard like it didn't imagine that I would use it that much. Um, so that was sort of, you know, quite predictable. So I'm sitting down doing work. And then I also have this Instagram um, account, which I uh, run. And that is probably sort of the more flexible side of things, because that tends to be quite reactive. Um, because I try to talk about things that are happening in race or racial injustice, like in real time, which can be quite tiring but I think is quite necessary. 
But then in March, yeah, in March of this year, March of 2021, so two months ago, I started a new job. And so now I'm trying to figure out how I can sort of be someone who earns a salary while still keeping up um, the other sort of streams that I'm doing. So, yeah, when people ask, like, what does my day to day look like? I, I don't really know yet because it looks different to how it looked two months ago. And that looked different to how it looked for the rest of my life. So I don't know. Just try and do stuff <laughs> not a good answer I know sorry no 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 I mean I I know the feeling of going people saying what is your routine you're like I don't know yeah. <laughs> I wake up every morning and that's sort of the only thing that's constant absolutely like sometimes well, I'll just take my laptop to bed in the evening because I know that I'm not going to want to get up tomorrow so I may as well just work from my bed like I think that's a nice thing and it's weird to say a nice thing about living in this weird pandemic time that we're living in but like I'm not getting up and putting on my shoes and going to an office I'm like starting my day in bed and that's nice for me I think so too I agree <laughs> oh she says and takes a nice sip of, <laughs> of of her what coffee tea of my coffee, coffee. my instant coffee I only <laughs> like really shit coffee <laughs> So you said that some of your work, or like at least your Instagram work, is tiring but necessary. Mm. Now, I will imagine that most people, if there's something that is tiring, you, because you say necessary, you mean like for the world, not, you know, it's not like you would get fired if you didn't do mm. it, right? So yeah. it's necessary for the world, but not a necessity for you to survive. And most people, if something wasn't necessary for them to survive and it was tiring, probably wouldn't do it. Hmm. So what makes you the person who does it? <laughs> Such an interesting question. Um, I don't know. It doesn't, I don't know why, but it doesn't really feel optional. It feels like, you know, I had, so for people who don't know, I run an account called Official Millennial Black. And in that I talk about essentially what's going on in race like that could be like how to have difficult conversations that could be how to be active and anti-racism that could be an event that's happening in this moment that you need to amplify and I started the account honestly because I knew I was going to have a book coming out and I felt like everyone who had books had platforms and I didn't have that at all but my background was in social social for titles um And so I was like, okay, I know how to do social for titles. I'll do a social account for my own title. Um, and I'd imagined it being like quite a happy space <laughs> where we like celebrated blackness and like womanness and, you know, all of the intersections and sort of nuances of that. And then after the murder of George Floyd, and I'm really glad actually that I can call it the murder of George Floyd without people being like, after George Floyd died, I'm like, no, actually, you know, <laughs> court decided the murder of George Floyd um I made a post and that sort of really went viral which is so strange to say because things don't go viral unless they're like cute cats um and it was a format that shouldn't have worked because it was just like lots of text on a on a background and historically Instagram has had a 20% text rule which means that anything that's more than that has just not worked So I did that not thinking anything. I thought like the 200 people who saw me would, who followed me would see it. And that ended up getting like, I think half a million likes and really sort of 
I was just seeing it everywhere. And then these people were coming to me and they started following me. And suddenly, you know, I had 200 followers. Then I had like 9,000 followers. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be able to do a swipe up soon. That seems cool. And it just didn't stop. And it ended up being like almost 200,000 followers in an incredibly short time. And it's so weird, I think, to sort of gauge things by follower numbers and like all of that, like that's such that could be such a vanity metric. But what I was seeing was people were coming to me and they were saying, I've gone on my first ever protest. I've signed my first ever petition. I've made my first ever donation. And I felt like if people were coming to me and doing something, I had a responsibility to try to keep that going. And the reason that I'm willing to do that is I'm a black woman, but I'm an incredibly privileged black woman. I have, you know, incredibly fair skin. I have light eyes. I, you know, am able, my proximity to whiteness means that my day-to-day life is easier than someone who can't have any separation from that. Like being a dark-skinned black woman is harder than my life. Being a dark-skinned trans person is harder than my life. Being a dark-skinned queer person is harder than my life. All of these things are harder. Being dark-skinned and with all of the rest of my life being exactly the same and my identities being exactly the same is still just harder. And so because people were coming to me to have these conversations and because I was aware that things that I hadn't chosen, the tone of my skin and all of these things, gave me a privilege that I was willing to get a bit tired to to do something that I felt was necessary to make some kind of change. Um, So that's what I'm trying to do. And I think that's what I mean when I say it's necessary. I feel like it's necessary to use everything you have to try to make something better. So that's what I'm trying to do, I think. Can you recognize some of that when you think of yourself as a child? Did you always have strong principles or a need or a sense of wanting to fight or make things good? I think so. Like, I'm estranged from my family. I, so I think I I was, like, not happy with a lot of the stuff that was going on when I was growing up. And I think I just decided, like, no, this isn't for me. I'm not going to be a part of this. And that's a really hard choice to make. But I think it was the right choice to make. And so, yeah, I think... The way I've expressed it before is I've never really been good at picking my battles. And so I think this is just like a continuation of that. And I remembered, this is like, I've never gone to therapy. I probably should. But this is like what I imagine therapy to be like. So I'm going to tell you a story from my childhood now. Um, I was thinking about the other day how when I was four, I gave up chocolate for Lent. You know, that like, Uh, 40 days or whatever before Easter but I thought chocolate meant like a bar of chocolate or like melty chocolate Um, and so I ate a chocolate biscuit which wasn't a biscuit with chocolate on it I knew that wasn't in the rules but like a chocolate flavored biscuit and I was like oh I did this and people were like well you've done it you've done it wrong haven't you like you were meant to give up chocolate and you haven't so I was like okay, I'll add on some time at the end of Lent to make up for what I've done. And not only will I give up chocolate, I'll also give up biscuits because that's what got me into this mess. So let's just get all of them out the door. And then I didn't eat chocolate or biscuits again until I was 18. And so to make up for like a slip of eating a biscuit, 
when I was four, I then took 14 years off from chocolate or biscuits to be like, look, I'm good. I can do it. So I think I'd forgotten entirely that I'd ever done that. But I think that's quite a strange thing for a child to do. (laughs) It probably tells you a lot about who I am. And where did that come from? Was that a family thing or a... Like the the pressure to be good and to do the right thing and the sort of shame, guilt thing about having not followed the rules. Where did that come from? I don't know. I don't think, like, I didn't have particularly strict parents or, I don't know. I think it, I think it just might be who I am. It's like in me. Uh, are you comfortable talking about the being estranged from your family? Would you yeah, rather let's not? See, let's see how we go. Yeah. So why, why did you leave? Oh, because I didn't find them to be very comfortable. I found that they were people who I wouldn't choose to have a relationship with if they weren't related to me. And I don't really see a huge value in what being related to someone does. Like, I don't see why that means that someone has to have access to you. And I didn't feel that I was very respected. I didn't feel like I was very much treated as a person um or as an adult and so and I think partially partially it's thanks to them like they were aware that um growing up as a mixed race person I was going to have to fight to find my own identity because you know when you grow up mixed race and if you're an only child like I am I have a half sister and some half brothers but in sort of the family that I was growing up in I was essentially an only child that means that there's no one else who is my race in my family. And so I had to sort of find my identity for myself. And not that race is the entirety of your identity, but it sort of affects, like, if you're a child, if something happens, people don't know, like, in the street, who to look to. Like, who is the person who owns her? Who is the person who's, you know, who she's a part of? So they were conscious that I wasn't... um, going to easily fit into one group or another, which isn't every mixed race person's um, experience. And they were like, we are going to have to let her and encourage her to be very headstrong. But that headstrongness also led me to the conclusion that they weren't the right people to be in my life. So, you know, it sort of maybe didn't work out as they had hoped. And when did you decide to, what's the word? Estrange yourself. That's not a word, is it? (laughs) No, I guess when did I decide to sort of step away from that relationship? Um, I probably haven't had a relate. My parents are still together. Um, I haven't had a relationship with my dad probably since I was about 18 and I'm 33 now. And then I I tried for longer with my mum. And I was like, I, I really tried. And I was like, here are the things that upset me. Here are the things that don't feel good when you do them. Here are the blah, 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 blah. And there was never any like, okay, I will try to change these things. They were like, well, you're just going to have to get over that. And so I gave up because I used to just like, I used to call them um, anxiety dreams. I used to have dreams about having to be around or speak to my family. I used to wake up very upset and like it was, wasn't working for me. And so I just had to say like, I've really tried to tell you what are the things that don't work for me and you aren't willing to change them. And so... I'm going to have to give up on trying to do this. And it's hard. When did you realize that it wasn't good? Like, Well, no, let me rephrase that. For how long 
were you under the impression that your parents were doing the right thing? You know, I think, you know, as children, we just have this belief that, you know, our parents are the best and they could never make any mistakes. So if something goes wrong, it's probably our fault. When did you make the realization that it probably wasn't you? Um, I don't know. Definitely, I definitely remember being a child and being like, my mum's great and she can do everything and she can fix everything. And that's very nice. But it was never like the best uh, home environment, which I don't think we'll go into. But um, yeah, I guess probably after I, so after uni, I moved to Paris and sort of, you know, was a grown up and like on my own and like, you know, figuring stuff out in a whole new country. And I think like those tensions just became, it wasn't until I was almost 30 probably that I was just like, we're not doing this anymore. But like, it's, it's been a long process of like trying to fix things and then realizing that, and I guess it's that control thing, realizing that I on my own cannot just fix this. And so I just need to take myself away from it. Was there a, so one of the, how do I phrase this? So when you went from 200 followers to almost 200,000 followers in a very short period of time, what I'm imagining is that you must have felt very heard. Mm. And I wonder if before this happened, what was your relationship with being seen and heard? Was that something that has that felt natural or comfortable or was it a strange thing that suddenly so many people were wanting to hear what you had to say? Um, I don't know. Let's have a think. Um, so my degree is in theatre. So I sort of, but I wasn't very good at it. I think I was still too nervous and too shy and like um, all of that stuff. Um, but I'd had quite senior positions in my work. And so I think I was quite used to people listening to me in sort of that sphere and I think I think that's possibly why I was glad that the account that got big isn't my personal account it's a completely separate account and my face pops up on it sometimes but not very often um it's very sort of um infographic-y like text boxy and I think that allows me to feel quite comfortable because it doesn't feel like me it feels like here's some research I've done or here's a piece that I care about or something I've written as opposed to like, here is me as a person. Do you like me? I sort of um, kept those things quite separate um, because I had to get comfortable with getting criticism and feedback and being open to that and not being hostile when things like that come in. And I think that would have felt harder for me on a thing, on a platform, on an account that felt more like a piece of me, whereas this feels more like a piece of work that I'm sort of sharing. And it's fine to get feedback on your work and you can make that better. In terms of anti-racism work, um, I what I'm thinking about is your audience, right? Because mm. the book you wrote, which is called uh, an anti Anti-racism. Anti-racist ally. Yes, that was the one. So it was another A words. I said it wrong myself. Anti-racist ally. Anti-racist ally, which is, I assume, primarily for white people, right? Or at least for non-black people, yeah. For non-black people, yes. And then your 
the book that just came out in April yeah. is yeah. Millennial, Millennial Black, which, as far as I understand, is for black women in business. Mm-hmm. So that is two different audiences, right? Very different, yeah. And I imagine your social media platform with the 200,000 followers, there must be, again, like different people reading and listening to you. What's your relationship with like the because from when it comes to obviously when it comes to racism those two audiences are have fairly different experiences with it is there something in the fact that you have these two audiences and also being mixed race mm-hmm. is there something in like you do you feel like a change in your um approach to it is is it does it trigger something in you when you imagine yourself speaking to different audiences does that make sense yeah it's barely a question it's just a long sentence but no i i, I feel like i have an answer to it so i have a, <laughs> I, feel, I feel like it's a question um also you're asking me questions that not only has no one ever asked me i've never considered <laughs> and so my answers are are often i think going to start with hmm <laughs> okay so <laughs> um but the, the sort of duality of the audience is something I've considered because the primary audience I have are white female Americans, oh. which is completely separate from my lived experience, like so different to my experience of the world. And as I said, because I started the account knowing that I had just signed a book deal and Millennial Black was going to come out in a year. So I was like, I've got this time to build up this audience of Black women for this book, essentially. Um, which, you know, doesn't sound <laughs> doesn't sound romantic, but it's the truth. Like, we all, I was trying to build a community. And the fact that a post about allyship is the post that went viral which is again weird to say meant that my entire perception of who I was going to be speaking to was thrown out because that audience that primarily white American woman was not the audience that I was trying to grow or trying to reach or engage with for the project that I thought I was working on and so I really had to battle with that and like had to worry like am I centering whiteness am I pandering am I like doing actually more damage to the group that I want to be helping like I really had to fight it out like internally and with people who would come to me and say you know you're you're pandering to these people you're you're doing the wrong thing essentially and I had to be really self-reflective and think am I doing the right thing and I think I think if I can make people make a donation that they wouldn't have made if I can make them write to their MP or their senator and they wouldn't have otherwise if I can make them hear something in the street or in their workplace and say you can't treat people like that then I think it's good but it's so much of like this whole journey is me saying but I didn't mean to (laughs) Like, it's all been such a surprise. And then once that um, first book, Anti-Racist Ally, came out, I then had to think, okay, I I need to keep 
that community, not because this is now a marketing channel, but because this is a channel where I ask people every week, what have you done this week? What have you done to be active in your anti-racism this week? And I don't want, now that this book is out, to just be like, all right, fuck that. Let's talk about this move. Like, that still feels important. But I then had to figure out how to reach a Black female audience, which I actually don't think I've been hugely successful in, because it's really hard to make that big pivot really quickly, because there were six months in between the books, which sounds sort of long and short at the same time. Um, so yeah, I don't think I have successfully re re just shifted how I how I reach people. Um, I'm hoping that the book being out in the world, because like my aim wasn't to be an influencer. My aim wasn't to have a verified account. I thought maybe doing a swipe up would be cool. Um, and so I don't really mind whether or not that community follows me. I just feel happy and confident that I've put something into the world that will hopefully help them, help us in some way, I think. Do you know, or if you do, how do you know, how to teach allyship or how to teach anti-racism? I'm thinking a lot about when people discuss activism. It's almost like there's two schools of thought. And one is, you know, people will only listen if you are kind and patient with them and like you don't shout at them and you just let them, you know, kindness, 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 etc. And then there's the no, fuck that, we get to be angry and it doesn't actually make a difference. And I've always thought of it as, I mean, I feel like some people can be angry, some people can be helpful. Usually it's up to the allies themselves to not shout at <laughs> the other people. Mm. Um, yeah, so the question is, do you know? <laughs> do you know how to teach allyship, essentially? No, I don't. <laughs> um I am much kinder on my account than I am as a person. In my actual life, I'm more like, fuck off, you're not talking to me like that, or you're going to stop doing this now. Whereas on my account, I'm like, okay, so how about if we like, and again, because I didn't mean to have a big account, none of this was sort of planned. I just felt like, I felt like I hoped I could be a starting point for people because so many people were like, I've done this for the first time. I've made my first donation, all of that stuff. It's like, okay, if I can be a starting point for people who've never even had this conversation before, if I can be an entry, then fine, I will do that. But I hope that people are able to essentially graduate from that. I'd love them to be like, okay, So she says this and she's really kind about it and whatever, but like Rachel Cargill is going to tell you everything that you've done that's wrong and why you should fuck right off. And I really want people to get past the need for me to wrap them in cotton wool for them to sort of build that, that shell and to be ready to go and do more. And I'm hoping that over time I can transition how I speak and how I sort of position it Um But yeah, I need to figure out how to do that. So yeah, I, I'm currently in the softly, softly, but I'm not convinced that's the best long-term method, but I'm just trying to figure it out. So you're 
clearly, obviously aware of your boundaries in terms of how you are treated when you are you and not the platform. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that when you deal with your platform, do you have to sort of shut down a bit of yourself or sort of distance yourself a bit from what you're doing? Like, is there like a, in order to not, like, because it, it takes so much patience to not go fuck off, right? Uh, how are you, how are you able to do that? I really like the block button. I like the block button so much. <laughs> and um, I really, I think possibly more than other people, keep a really close eye on what's happening in my comments because I feel, again, and again, maybe this isn't the right thing to do. Who knows? I feel like people who have come to my platform are these people who are at that sort of early stage in their journey. And so I'm not having someone tell them, that they're a cunt in the comments like I'm just not having it they've come to a safe space and so I will delete and I will block and um I really also like the restrict button because people think that they're still commenting and it's just not happening so they just sort of they so like essentially when trolls come and they say absolute racist nonsense I will restrict them And to them, it looks like they're still like having arguments with people, but they're not. They're just shouting into nothing. And that just makes me giggle so much. I'm like, you don't even know. You don't even know what an idiot you are. (laughs) Only I know. And I love it. Um, So, yeah, very quick on the block and delete buttons. And that's sort of, I think, how I keep my boundaries in place. I'm, I'm, I'm not here to debate with people like, does racism exist? Or did this person deserve to die? Or and I'm like, I'm just going to block you. That's a, it just sounds like a very healthy relationship with boundaries. Thanks. <laughs> are you are, are you generally good at boundaries? Have you always been good at boundaries? Don't know. I guess so. Yeah, I guess I've had always had a very strong idea of what I'm not going to take, and I guess the the word for that is boundaries. So, yeah, I guess so. Do you? How do you find it on your account? Do you like? Because that's you. I feel like it. Yeah, I'm. I'm thinking a lot about it. The the being being your own brand or being your own business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also a big fan of the block button. I'm also a big fan of telling myself that when it comes to things that affect me in both like a, a you know, socio-political way, but also just me personally, I can do whatever the fuck I want. And if that means, you know, screenshotting a, an abusive DM and not blocking out their name, Mm-hmm. then I am allowed to do that because there there's no actual, this common decency, but there's no actual rules. Mm-hmm. And I can, and sometimes I'll have a trauma reaction to something where I'll react very hugely to something that isn't actually that big of a deal, but that's because I was triggered. And then I get to shout because that's my trauma reaction and they mm. were the ones in my DM. So I really try to not, like to think of it as my platform where mm-hmm. I can block and do whatever I want, even if someone's just a bit annoying. I can't just block them. I don't have to justify it to anyone. And I think that's my first real practice with boundaries mm-hmm. is trying it like online before I start <laughs> doing it in real life. <laughs> start rolling it out into yeah. your life. <laughs> <laughs> if I start blocking people in real life, which is a lot harder. Yeah, that is harder, but not impossible. No, oh, definitely not impossible. Just uh, it's a journey. It is. Uh, in terms of your work in business, 
I just say business as if that's an industry. Um, you know, business. Not in the business industry, you know. Just like, <laughs> business industry. Just like business about. <laughs> so what is it that we need? I mean, you've done an uh, incredible TEDx talk. And yeah. I will, I mean, people who are listening now will have heard me say this in the intro. Go and watch it. It's incredible. Uh, the, <laughs> I feel like when we talked the first time, I asked you, Oh, aren't you, don't you just want to scream all the time, knowing everything that you know? And yeah, I guess what what is your work when it comes to um, what you talked about in the TEDx talk? The wait, glass cliff mm-hmm. versus glass ceiling. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so it's really hard to do this without sort of going into like lines from the TEDx because I sort of know it so well. Also, I got told yesterday, and they said I can share it. I got told yesterday that it's getting upgraded in May to be a real TED talk on the TED <gasps> website. Yes. So that's cool. I didn't even know yes. that could happen. I didn't know so, that either. That's amazing. Yeah, it's cool. Thank well, you. then I will rephrase. So you've done a TED <laughs> talk. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> amazing. Um, so yeah, so I talk a lot about the glass ceiling, and I think it's a term that most people know, that sort of invisible barrier that sits above the heads Usually we talk about it in terms of women in business and that stops them from getting to sort of the highest levels of their careers. They can sort of see them and it looks like you can touch it, but when it comes to it, they find that there's something blocking them. But we do know that there are some senior women and racially marginalized people in business. And so we know that some people can break through the glass ceiling, but we don't really talk about what happens when when you do manage to break through it. And so when I was researching for Millennial Black, I was trying to find out essentially if um, Black women, so two marginalised identities, Blackness and womanness, and I would like to say that I sort of define both in how people define themselves. I define myself as a Black woman, even though I'm much lighter skinned than some other people. I'm not here to quantify anyone's Blackness or womanness. If that's what you are, that's what you are. You don't have to justify any of that. Um, But we know that there are some people who do have marginalised identities who are super senior in business. So they've broken through that glass ceiling. So I was like, what happens to them next? And what happens is, generally speaking, they don't stay in those positions for a very, very long time. And that's because they find themselves in what researchers have called the, the glass cliff. So what we see happening really is businesses promote or employ women or racially marginalized people to the most senior positions generally when those businesses are in a period of decline they have had a prolonged period of difficulty whether that's profits whether that is a reputational standard or whatever that is they've gone through some kind of problem generally speaking before they bring in an underrepresented leader and that means that leader is coming into a business that's not in great shape And so their chances of success and completely turning around that business are low just from the outset. But they're also low because research has shown that they're not even brought in with the expectation that they will make this transformational change. They're brought in because they're seen as good leaders of people and they have good soft skills. So if the business has been in a hard time, they can just make everyone feel a bit better. But because they're not expected to make that change, they're often not given the tools or the time that they need to make that change. 
And so their chances of success, again, are super limited. And that means that they're often, I don't have the stat at the top of my head, but they're much more often than male leaders pushed out of their pushed out of their position. So they're fired. And then there's something called the savior effect, which means that they're more likely to then be replaced by someone who is both white and male, which says to the business, to the shareholders, to the employees, don't worry, we've gone back to business as usual. Everything's okay. And then critically, that white male savior is given both the tools and the time needed to make that change. So he seems to have succeeded where everyone else seems to have failed. And so we reinforce this idea that only white male hands are safe hands to have businesses in. So that's essentially the glass clear. When you inherit a senior role, when your chances of success are already limited, and that creates the narrative that actually people like you were never good enough to be in that role in the first place. So when you talk about this, in your experience, what's the reaction like? And the the reason I ask is because you you earlier on, you talked about your own privilege. Mm-hmm. And part of what I was thinking was, you sound so much more chill acknowledging your privilege than most people do. You know, whenever we have to talk about our privilege, it's like, <gasps> you know, I know, I know, I know. Um and I'm and I had this theory that perhaps the more marginalized you were or the more um oppress- oppressive behavior you would have to endure, the easier it was for you to actually say, Oh no, I can talk about being privileged because I know how it what it's like. Where white men in business, I imagine, have not I why do I say I imagine as if I don't know this? They're horrible. <laughs> <laughs> at, at you know being told oh you're doing this thing wrong and you're you have all this unconscious bias so in the work that you do surrounding this how do you communicate this to them or like how do they react or like how do we make them what 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 do we do to stop this basically when it's most likely that the people in charge are going to be big babies about this yeah so whilst it's not my day job I do spend a lot of time going into businesses and um, talking to them. And, you know, going into businesses in 2020 and 2021 means going on a Zoom. So it's not, I, I'm like, I, I'm not in any physical danger or discomfort. Or if I want to, I can just press hang up and that's that done. Um, but I do spend a lot of time going into businesses and talking about anti-racism. Um which in itself feels like a privilege to be invited into those spaces to have conversations about things that matter. And what I found works really well is I say, and now we're going to talk about privilege. And that always makes people uncomfortable. And that's why we're doing it. And so I sort of give a definition of privilege, which is part of the definition of privilege is that it's unearned advantages that are given to people. And importantly, that people who receive them are often unaware of. And so we can start by acknowledging that it's okay to not see your privileges, to have not seen your privileges up to now, because you've been taught that they're just normal. But once we start to look at how people treat us versus how people treat other people, we can start to identify that there are some areas where we don't have to struggle. So when I talk about white privilege, early on, people would say, yes, but what about Eastern European 
immigrants. They have a terrible time. And I'm, I say, yes, they absolutely do. And a lot of what they suffer from is xenophobia and occupational segregation. What they don't suffer from, generally speaking, is they, they are not victimized because of the color of their skin. They are struggling in all of these other areas, but they're not struggling as a result of their skin color. And so they do have areas of privilege and they have areas of disadvantage. And we, we can recognize that because once we, and then I have to talk to them about intersectionality and I'm like, and once we realize that we're all made up of so many different facets, we can see that we are able to be uplifted in some areas of our lives and to be marginalized in others. And then I sort of use myself as an example. I'm like, I'm a black woman, but I'm very light skinned and I have all of this. I'm in a heterosexual relationship. I'm able-bodied. And so I can sort of lay out my areas of privilege and my areas of struggle. And I think we don't often hear people say, here's where I'm uplifted and here's where I'm marginalized. And once someone can model that for them, I find that that is more easily accepted. Yeah, I mean, I feel that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay, actually. <laughs> um, okay, so before I ask you um, the last question, I'm going to try and I have all these bits about everything you've said that I'm trying to make into one question and it's a bit tricky. So I might just say like a long sentence and then be quiet till you say something. Okay. <laughs> the the word I want to go back to is control, um, which thankfully I keep being reminded by because of all the balloons in your background <sighs> uh, and your uh, uncomfortableness with not being able to control when they say bang. I guess the glass cliff, glass ceiling, the topic in this is a lot about you are unable to control how people react to you because you are who you are. And your job is also partly trying to fix that. And same with your work in anti-racism. It's this thing that is so uncontrollable, yet you found a way to to try and control it as much as you can. And I guess the question would be, if there is a part of your process that is fueled by your feelings around control, and if there... It, maybe if you see in your future you... Met metaphorically being able to be around balloons <laughs> okay um yeah I mean I guess I hadn't ah oh, making me think about myself <laughs> um yeah I guess I hadn't thought about the those other things in my life as being about control but I guess you're right and this I think is why so as I say I started a new job um in March and now I'm working at Netflix and I am not used to having a boss and I'm not used to again not being in control of what I do and when I do it and how I do it and it's not that Netflix isn't the kind of business where they're just like do this task but I still have to readapt to working within a structure and within a team and a vertical and like all of these things 
and that's been again an, an interesting transition for me so will one day I be able to be around balloons well I can be around these literal balloons because they are in a thing I can control they are in some bags and my cat can't get them and I don't think they're going to say bang I hope um longer term I don't know I don't know if I'll ever get there and it would make my life a lot easier if I could like going to get my um my COVID injection the other week. The thing I couldn't, I had to have my partner come with me. I had to bring him into like the little cubicle and he was like standing over on the left. I was like, no, I need you to stand on the right. I need you to hold this hand. I need like very much like stage managing every part of things. And like, even with my books, like I was so involved in in ways that just I don't think authors usually are. I had to be in control of these things. And my life would be a lot easier if I didn't always have to be in control. So I'd say that hopefully one day I can be around the metaphorical balloon. But I don't I don't know if that will happen. Do you think it stems from whatever it was that made you feel the need to prove? that you could control your intake of biscuits and chocolate. <laughs> possibly. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, that's a weird thing for a four-year-old to do, right? Just like 14 years, no more of this thanks. Like, yeah, there's something in there. Maybe I go to therapy one day. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of very nice metaphors in this, isn't there? <laughs> I mean, I can I can see the sort of the determination and this the I would I could see it as a reaction to what must have felt like losing control because you were doing this thing for Lent and there were rules and then mm -hmm. accidentally you broke a rule and then it was just like, well, no, now I have complete control over what I do forever just yeah. to be safe. Absolutely. And as an adult, I don't care about other people's rules. Like that sort of rule following hasn't um, hasn't continued but. I care about my own rules still. Like if I make a, if I decide this is how we're going to do it, like, yeah, we're doing it that way. Um, oh, I'm going to have to go to therapy. Thanks, <laughs> Sophie Hagen. <laughs> to be fair, I think that's a sentence that most people say at the end of these <laughs> chats. Oh, Christ, I probably need therapy. Um, you are taking us into the last question. You are clearly incredibly intelligent. You're funny. You're kind empathetic you're in, an incredibly talented warm person i like this so <laughs> and that was the question no wait uh, thanks well the question is where does that come from then you know we can talk a lot about where does all the control and all the darkness and all of those things come from but who or what contributed to all the positive factors that uh, are the majority of you um I think it's the same. I think I know what it's like to feel like you don't belong and you don't fit in and there's no space in the world that is a safe and comfortable place for you. And I don't like it. And so if I can make other people feel that there is a safe and comfortable place for them, whether that is a person on the internet or... I don't know, like their boss or like whoever, if who if I can <laughs> if I can store a big room full of balloons for you, even though it's scary for me, like it feels worth it. And so I think 
and know what it's like to not feel part of something or to not feel like you are right for who you are in ways that you can't control and so I just want to be kind to other people and I think that's what the anti-racism work and everything else comes from like you should just be kind to people that's what I'm trying to make people do so is it a kind of because there's never been anywhere you could store your balloons then you will now create that space for well, others or... yeah I hope so that's nice yeah also I'm very lucky I have a very very sort of kind and supportive partner who um I think has made um has made the things that I'm doing easier for me it's easier to do things when you've got someone who's on your side so I think that I know that not everyone has a partner and not everyone has a partner who is sort of the same as mine but I would be remiss to not acknowledge that that is another privilege that I have and that makes my life easier too that's nice <laughs> thank you so much for doing this thank it's such a pleasure me. speaking to you you as well also I love Sophie Hagen so much like <laughs> <laughs> it's like I think I've really learned even like we've, we've spoken once before very briefly um but like watching you learn to cook in lockdown <laughs> or like your book or what like Aww. I um I'm fat and I became fat later in my life I still had always been quite you know a controlled thin person um yeah and I think you have added so much value to my life without you ever knowing it and I think um I should tell you that oh, thank you oh <laughs> thank you you're you're changing lives And now you've changed my day and made it a lot better. Uh, so where can people uh, find your stuff? I literally just, and I should have done this before, but I literally just bought the anti-racism ally ship book. <laughs> There's so many A words. I can't do A words, yeah, uh, which is uh, arriving today. So I'm very excited about that. But where can people, where else do people find you and support you and get to know you? You can find me on Instagram on at official millennial black. You can find my first book, Anti-Racist Ally. Um, and you can find my new book, Millennial Black, um, anywhere that books are sold. Um, I would encourage you to, to support an independent bookstore or a black-owned bookstore if you're able or support your library. I think people don't know how, how much you do not get royalties from your book unless it is like a breakaway success so like do feel free to get it from a library borrow it from a friend sort of do whatever like, I don't mind um and yeah and they're my main things I guess my Instagram and my two books is that me yeah I think that's me amazing thank you so much for doing this thank you for having me Ba-da-o. Sorry, I'll get it. I promise I'll get a jingle at some point. Go buy Sophie's books, follow her on all the social media, and of course, go see her TEDx London Women talk on YouTube. Now I shall let you know how the future looks for the Who Hurt You podcast, formerly known as the Made of Human podcast. I've been thinking hard about what to do with this podcast for months. On one hand, I didn't want to realize that I am just no longer capable of recording and releasing one episode a week. 
On the other hand, I could not imagine not doing the podcast any longer. It took me ages to realize that there's actually a third alternative, which is this. From now on, I will book, record and release interviews when I have the brain capacity. Never more than once a week, of course, and let's be honest, ideally once a week when I can. But other than that, I can't promise you that it'll be every week. My life looks very different than it did in 2016 when I started Made of Human. This podcast is and has always been self-produced. Booking just one guest takes forever. Emailing back and forth with an agent, rescheduling whenever something comes up, sending the right Zoom link, explaining the podcast, all of that I think is the it's the worst bit of this. It's all boring admin. In the course of this podcast, I have many times tried hiring various people to do it for me, but it has just never worked out. The actual interview, that's the fun bit. I also love researching the person beforehand. Recently, I read an entire book the day before an interview. It took me the whole day. And then the guest cancelled. And didn't reschedule, just cancelled. A whole book. I read a whole book. It took a whole day. I then have to record this, the intro and the outro, and I have to figure out all the other stuff, the name of the title, if there's anything we need to cut from the episode, if there's anything we need to use for the Patreon supporters as your little extra something-something. And then I have to send it all to Dave, who thankfully handles the rest. I am so grateful for Dave. I cannot even begin to tell you. There would not be a podcast without them. Since I started working on my true crime podcast, Bad People, alongside Dr. Julia Shaw, I realized how easy it is to podcast when you're not producing it yourself. Our producers from the from the BBC, they do the research, the editing, the uploading, the booking. I just have to accept some Google Calendar invites and turn up to the recording. There's even a script written that I just need to lose the adhere to. We have several producers to make sure the podcast goes out weekly, and they're 40 minutes long at best. And even bad people with all of our producers and two hosts and all of that still have to take a few month-long breaks every year. I hope you don't think that I'm moaning. It might be easy to, at this point, think, all right, Jesus Christ, like you don't have to do this if it's so shitty. But I really hope it shines through that I really, really love this. When I have the capacity when my brain isn't existing in a black cloud and I just want to disappear. Like now, when I'm sitting in my kitchen and I'm about to record nine more intros and outros and send them to Dave who will release them to you, I am excited, I'm elated, I feel creative, I feel productive, and I feel like I'm giving you something that no one else could. I love it when I get to interview people. I love interviewing. And I love you. I mean, I feel like I'm so incredibly lucky to have the listeners that I have and followers and whatever fans ugh, that I have. And I want to keep talking to you like this on my self-produced podcast that I can be proud of. So thank you for staying with me. Here is how it will work regarding Patreon from now on. I'm going to try and make it simple. So listen carefully. I will also send this in a message to all patrons so you will get it in writing too. So do open and read that email when it comes. At the moment, there are two Patreons. One is patreon.com forward slash Mopad. From now on, I will post the episode to this. 
And if you are a patron of this, you will be charged per episode. You will no longer receive the extra bits. You will no longer get your name read out loud. You will just be charged every time I release a new episode. No extras. So, if you just want to support the podcast and you don't care about any of the extra bits and bobs, feel free to stay on the Mopod Patreon. The other Patreon is patreon.com forward slash Sophie Hagen, S-O-F-I-E-H-A-G-E-N. I will also post the new episodes to this and extra bits when they're available and videos and behind the scenes stuff and discounts to tickets and so much more. No promises though. That is why you're charged monthly. So you pick a monthly fee to support me with and then that is what you give me regardless of how much content I release. So if you want to support the podcast and get all the extra stuff and also get access to some cool stuff, including a Patreon-only Discord server where you can chat to other listeners and me, sign up to that one instead, to patreon.com forward slash Sophie Hagen. If you are a member of both, you're of course welcome to do that, but you might want to pick patreon.com forward slash Mopad. You support with an amount per episode. Patreon.com forward slash Sophie Hagen. You support with an amount per month. I'll be honest with you. I've had a heavy feeling in my gut for the past many months because I felt like I was letting down the podcast. I am beyond thrilled to get this all started again. Thank you for being with me on my journey. Thank you to Dave Pickering for editing the episodes and for having immense patience with me. Thank you to you for listening and thank you to Sophie Williams for being a brilliant guest. Speak to you soon. Bye. Do 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 do.